Professor, author, and counselor Dr. Chuck DeGroat from Western Theological Seminary speaks to the Laterno University Honors College on the subject of burnout, fatigue, self-doubt, and perfectionism as part of our conversation series. Take a listen. It's good to see you. Thanks for coming out on a windy night here. It's not supposed to be this windy, is it? This is unusual? So um, I, I live now uh, on the on the coast of Lake Michigan, where we get this like lake effect snow and it's always windy. So this feels like a warm breeze to me <laughs> compared to, compared to uh, I'm sure what you all experience pretty regularly around here. So it's good to be here. I actually looked at Letourneau 30 years ago when I was looking at colleges. I was looking at the aviation program. You guys still have an aviation program? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I grew up on Long Island in New York and there was uh, a really good aviation school there, and I did it for like a year, and I couldn't, I couldn't do the math, and so I switched to philosophy. <laughs> so, yeah. But um, yeah, it's, it's kind of good to be here in Longview and, and to meet you and to see Letourneau and to be here tomorrow, too. Um, I don't know, I don't know you, so it would help for just a minute uh, for you to just think of one word. Where, what are you bringing tonight? Like, where are you tonight in your being, in yourself, like emotionally? Just one word. You just call it out. No one has to raise hands or anything like that. But where are you? What are you bringing? Encouraged. Encouraged? Tired. Tired? Crazy. Crazy. <laughs> Stressed and blessed? Did I hear, or did I double stressed? Okay. Worried? Yeah. Say again. Yeah. Anyone else? Thinking. Okay. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I wrote this book, Wholeheartedness, in part because I, I was living in San Francisco at the time and living and working among 30-somethings, 20-somethings, uh, a lot of them straight out of college, and a lot of them saying, I am feeling pulled in a thousand different directions. Like, I'm just, I'm feeling pulled, I'm feeling stretched thin, I'm feeling torn. It seems like nowadays we, we have... Um, so much to do, but so little time to do it. Does that feel like that sometimes for you? Like we've got better time management resources than we probably had when we were in college and we've, we've got better technology and yet, uh, and, and all these things to make life more efficient and yet we feel like there's less time to do it all. This is the way Dr. Seuss puts it. Dr. Seuss says, how did it get so late so soon? It's night before it's afternoon. December is here before it's June. My goodness, how the time has flown. How did it get so late so soon? And maybe you can relate to that. My daughter Maggie, my, my freshman, uh, a few weeks ago, it's a, a couple weeks, weekends ago, it's a Friday night, we're putting her to bed, and she says, Dad, it feels like the weekend's over already. <laughs> and this is the way we feel sometimes. And I'm, I'm hearing this sense that people are feeling torn from all over the place. I'm hearing it from my seminary students. I'm hearing it from people who are at midlife. 
I'm hearing it from folks who are successful and seem to have their lives put together. I'm hearing it from people who are struggling and maybe working several jobs just to, to make ends meet. And believe it or not, I'm hearing it from college students too. Um, I work in a college town. I live in a college town. I go to a church with about 200 college students. I was standing outside a church about a month ago and talking, it was the end of last semester. So I was talking to this guy, very gifted college student. And um, he said to me something to the effect of like, I feel like right now everything is on the line and, and how I do and uh, like the grades I make, like everything depends on this season of my life right now. Can you relate to that in some ways? Like it all depends on how we do right now. It's so critical. This like key moment in your lives is so big and so critical. And so I'm hearing that. I'm hearing people say I'm feeling torn in all these different directions. I'm feeling tired. Um, I'm also hearing people say I long to flourish. I long for more. I don't want to live like this. I long to experience greater resilience, greater flow in my life. I long to experience wholeness. I long to experience wholeness. Uh, people are, I'm finding, people are growing less and less satisfied doing life on the hamster wheel. You know what I mean when I talk about the hamster wheel? People are growing less and less satisfied doing life on the, the hamster wheel, less and less satisfied counting down the days to the weekend or to the next vacation. I'm hearing more and more, that I, I want to live each day of my life with fullness, with joy, with flourishing. I don't want to count down my days to the weekend so that I can just kind of do rest hard, you know, do play hard, so that I go back to work on Monday. I want something more. We, we're longing for wholeness. Uh, one of the things I discovered, again, being back in the Bay Area, was that this is actually something that uh, is, is growing as a, as a longing, as a desire out there in culture as well. A number of the companies in Silicon Valley were implementing changes within their companies to create and nurture um, greater wholeness, greater happiness, uh, greater creativity in the ways that people work together and do life with one another, and even the work, the aesthetics of the work environments that they're in. So there were these active conversations going on in Silicon Valley about how, how do we create environments where people can actually flourish in their work. Uh, I've talked to uh, people in med schools and uh, the head of a, a law school in San Francisco, and in, in med schools and law schools, they're beginning to teach students mindfulness. Have you heard of mindfulness? Do you know mindfulness? Meditation, they're, they're teaching law students. This kind of seems really important to me, like law students and future doctors, <laughs> you know, learning these kinds of techniques to allow them to get more centered, to uh, allow them to experience greater wholeness in life when so much of their life is lived with stress. And, and never before has like the literature been so abundant on, uh, on, on, on a flourishing life on a life of flow, I think there are a number of books with the title Flow in it, um, a life of, of ha a greater joy and, and happiness, a, a life of wholeheartedness. Um, Parker Palmer, some of you may have read Parker Palmer's work on spirituality and education. Uh, there's a physicist named David Bone, he's since passed away, who's talked about these kinds of things. The poetry of, of Mary Oliver 
and John O'Donohue, David White's work on workplaces and organizations, uh, Brene Brown's work. You know Brene Brown? Brene Brown's research on shame and vulnerability and wholeness. People are talking about this. We long to be more whole. We long to flourish. We're tired of living, feeling like we're pulled in a thousand different directions. We don't want to do life on the hamster wheel. And we're wondering, is there a way through this? Is there a way out? And so I want to do a couple of things with you and then have some time for Q&A. First, I want to do a little bit of a diagnosis, like cultural and personal diagnosis. Like what's going on with us? What's wrong? And so we'll kind of look at that, what's wrong? And then we'll kind of shift our attention and we'll take a look at how, how might we live in a new way? Are there some practices? Is, are, are there things that maybe I can offer you to invite you into to a life of greater wholeheartedness? Sound good? So let's, if you're taking notes, let's start by just doing some diagnosis work for a few minutes. Why are we feeling so exhausted? Why are we feeling pulled in a thousand different directions? Uh, the first thing I want to offer is that we're living in this in interesting cultural moment where there are these two simultaneous realities. And one of the realities is, is something like, it's not enough. And the other reality is something like, I'm not enough. <laughs> it's not enough and I'm not enough. It's, it's not enough. We, we feel this sometimes. We don't have enough. We're not doing enough. We're not accomplishing enough. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. Every college student can relate to that, right? I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. I don't have the resources I need. I'm not achieving enough. I have a 3.9 uh, GPA, and I really want a 4.0 GPA, right? And we're living in that 0.1. And, and, and the gap between the 3.9 and the 4.0 can keep you up at night, angst-ridden. It's never enough. I'm not getting enough experience to do what I really want to do in life. I'm not respected enough. I'm not sought after enough. I'm not loved enough. I'm not valued enough. And by the way, marketers are preying on this right now. They, what we know now, um, like kind of behind the scenes, is that billions of dollars a year are spent on determining your particular scarcity, your particular not enoughness. Right? I mean, I see this in the different places I've lived. When I was out in San Francisco, all the ads seemed to be like targeted to like technology and clothing. Now I moved to Michigan and it's all about like big trucks and outdoors, you know? I mean, they're, they're looking for your particular scarcity. Well, one of the marketers at General Motors calls this the organized creation of dissatisfaction. Isn't that interesting? The organized creation of dissatisfaction. They want you to be dissatisfied. Like, I need the new iPhone. I need the X. I really just need the X. I need to be able to do the profile photos with the nice black background. I have to have it right now, right? Some of you, do you have, uh, confess, who has iPhone Xs? Anyone? I do. I had to have it too. Kindred spirits, we're in this together, okay? They got us. But this is the way it works with, I've got to have the new iPhone. I've got to have the new outfit. I've got to have that new car. Or, you know, the, you know it's the middle of winter, at least for us, maybe not for you. And a, and a beautiful commercial comes on with Caribbean blue waters. And next thing you know, we just booked a cruise for, for spring break, you know? And it's like, they got us. They got us again. The organized creation of dissatisfaction. It's not enough. But then there's also the second sense that I think undergirds it. Like maybe I'm not enough. 
Maybe I'm not enough. You feel it when you get off the hamster wheel at the end of the day. You feel it late at night when you're, you're laying in bed in your dorm room. Maybe I'm not enough. That sense of shame, that sense that maybe something's wrong with me, that something's deficient. Uh, do, some of, do some of you remember David Letterman, the old uh, late night talk show host? Um, David Letterman has a new show. He just inter interviewed Barack Obama. It's supposed to be really good. I haven't seen it yet. But David Letterman, we used to love David Letterman back in the day. Stay up late to watch David Letterman. David, David Letterman's now been replaced by, is it Colbert or Kimmel or Fallon or one of them, right? But Letterman was the man. We all wanted to be David Letterman. He was so cool. He was so funny. He was so at ease. And then an article comes out about, I want to say it was about 10 years ago or so now, where he, he talks about how it is for him, how it was for him to get up every night, like to do it again every night. And this is what he said. He said, every night you're trying to prove your self-worth. It's like meeting your girlfriend's family for the first time. You want to be the absolute best, wittiest, smartest, most charming, best-smelling version of yourself. He said, if I can make people enjoy the experience and have a higher regard for me when I'm finished, it makes me feel like an entire person, a whole person. If I've come short of that, I'm not happy. How things go for me every night is how I feel about myself for the next 24 hours. You feel that? I mean, how, how it goes for me every night is how I feel about myself for the next 24 hours. How it goes for me in this test this week is how I'm gonna feel about myself for the next week or the next semester. How it goes in the conversation with my boyfriend or girlfriend is how I'm gonna feel about myself for the next week. This is the way it goes for us. Shame. This pervasive sense that maybe I'm not enough. I, I worked so hard. I got, I got the A, but something in me still feels lacking, still feels deficient. I, I gave everything I had to that relationship, and yet they still broke up with me. Something in me feels deficient. It feels like something's wrong with me. It feels like something's flawed. This sense of not enoughness is a sense of shame and it's a pervasive feeling. Brene Brown says, shame works like a zoom lens on a camera. When we're feeling shame, the camera is zoomed in tight and all we see is our flawed selves alone and struggling. That's what shame feels like. And it's a universal phenomenon. There's not one person in this room who can't relate to it. I had a friend, by the way, went to work at this seminary about four and a half years ago. I was talking about shame. I had a friend. He said, I don't feel shame. Whatever the stuff is that you're talking about, I don't feel shame. I said, I guarantee it'll take me maybe a year or two, but I will get you to acknowledge your shame. And he comes to me about a year later. He says, man, I feel so much shame. I never feel like I'm enough. When I go to faculty meetings, when I write papers, I never feel like I'm enough. We all feel it. You may not feel it like right now in a palpable way, but it's underneath each and every one of us. I remember when I was, um, so I'm an ordained minister too, and when I was doing my ordination exams, I had to get up for two and a half hours in front of like all my peers and all my old professors and answer all these theological questions. And I was like, I was acing it. I had like memorized all the catechisms. I had them like stuck in my head. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. It was like that, right? It just pops out. It's still there, you know? It's amazing. I don't know if I believed any of it at the time, but it was like in there, memorized. <laughs> and so then it comes around to my professor, Dr. James. 
And Dr. James stands up. Dr. James loves me, and I love him, and I aced his classes, church history classes. Comes around to Dr. James, and Dr. James asks me a question. And I swear, he has never taught this at all. Like, whatever he asked me, he has never once said in class. And I drew a blank. And then the feeling starts to come out. And that, like, you know this feeling. It's like, starts here, and it starts to creep up my, like, chest and into my throat and, like, starts to cover my face and then covers my body like a tar. My face is bright red. My, my knees are shaky and my hands are sweating. And I say, I don't know. What do you think... What do you think the thing is I remember from my ordination exams? It's that. It's not acing. I mean, people came up to me afterwards and patted me on the back and said, you aced it. I said, no, I blew it. My memory was that I blew my ordination exam. That's the way shame works in our lives. And so maybe, maybe you can relate. I think certainly all of us can relate in one way or another. But there's a second there's a second piece of this that I want to kind of um, push us to think about as well. Like in light of this, you'd think that, um, in light of the fact that we feel torn in all these different directions, in light of the fact that we're tired and exhausted and stressed and all these things, you'd think that we'd take better care of ourselves. You'd think that we'd change our, our lifestyle. I mean, we live, we live in America. Don't they call it America down here in Texas, right? We live, in a, we live in America, like, we're supposed to have these kinds of things figured out, and yet we don't, and yet we still struggle. Let me just give you some stats that really shocked me, really surprised me when I first read them. 40% of American workers, no matter how wealthy they are, feel overworked. Most report feeling like they work in the most extreme conditions than any other industrialized country on Earth, in the United States. 50% feel like they have too much work to finish in a week. Two-thirds feel like they don't have enough time with their spouse. Three-quarters don't feel like they have enough time with their children. <clears throat> this one's really interesting to me. The U.S. is simultaneously at the bottom of the global list for vacation time offered and at the top of the list of workers who don't take their vacation days. Does that make sense? <laughs> Doesn't make sense to me. Even seniors, this is a quote, even senior adults, retired senior adults feel, uh, reported feeling flattened by all the tasks they needed and wanted to do in a day. Bridget Schulte, a journalist and a, and a writer and a researcher who wrote a book called Overwhelmed, said an increasing number of workers reported feeling overwhelmed and poorer health, overworked, depressed, angry at their employers for expecting so much, resentful of others because they were slacking off and being so exhausted that they were prone to make mistakes and also prone to doing lower quality work. That's where we are. That's how we're living in our vocations. And I, I, I don't mean to depress you. Are you all sufficiently depressed at this point? Like, I was hoping that this would be slightly uplifting and now I feel like I'm going into the workforce and I'm gonna be depressed and not take my vacation and this is gonna be, no, we'll get there. But, but I do want to highlight the, the reality that for, for decades we've been living in this kind of way and we're sort of stepping into a new moment. There, we're, we're stepping into a new possibilities. We're, we're beginning to talk about things like flourishing and wholeheartedness as in workplaces and in law schools and in, in uh, medical schools are having different discussions about what it lives to mean a more integrated, more wholehearted lives. We're moving in a new direction. And so before we go into some sort of positive ways of thinking about how we might live wholeheartedly, let me just give you kind of two big conclusions maybe. Uh, 
we don't feel like we're enough, and, and we're really not that happy. When I look at the research, when I, when I read the stats, when I look at sort of the wealth of literature on this, we don't feel like we're enough. We don't feel happy. I mean, you know the United States ranks lower than Israel, Canada, and Mexico in terms of the United States Global Happiness Index? We're not happy. We're not flourishing. We're living our lives on the hamster wheel, but we're not really flourishing. Maybe you've heard Thoreau's famous line, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And I see this all the time. People are living lives of quiet desperation. I've started two church-based counseling centers, one in Orlando, one in San Francisco, and I've counseled hundreds and hundreds of people, Christians and non-Christians, and it saddens me to say, I see this with Christians too. We're not happy. In our churches, we hear a gospel of grace, I hope. In our churches, we hear a gospel that invites us to rest, that invites us to freedom, but we're still living our lives in such a way that we're on the hamster wheel. We're exhausting ourselves to death. We're perfecting ourselves to death. So the question is, and where I want to kind of land tonight, is what do we do with this? Is there a way to live differently? And obviously I can't give you, I'm not going to give you like three steps to a happy or a healthier life, you know. There's no easy answer to this. But let me invite you into a couple of different ways of thinking about how you might live a bit more wholeheartedly, okay? I want to say that wholeheartedness is an invitation to vulnerability and self-compassion in Christ. The life of wholeheartedness is an invitation to vulnerability. We'll talk about first and then self-compassion in Christ. Let's talk about vulnerability for a moment. I would argue that since Genesis chapter 3, so like pretty early on in the Bible, we've been hiding. Would you agree with that? I mean, we had, we had it good for two chapters. And then like the rest of the Bible until you get to Revelation chapter 21, it's pretty darn messy, isn't it? From Genesis chapter 3... We've been hiding. Adam and Eve hid, and we've been hiding ever since. Our way of coping in the world sometimes is to hide our true selves, to put on the appearance of having it all together when we really don't. Simon Tugwell says this, and see if you can relate to this quote. He says, we either flee our own reality or manufacture a false self which is mostly admirable, mildly prepossessing, and superficially happy. We hide what we know or feel ourselves to be, which we assume to be unacceptable and unlovable behind some kind of appearance which we hope will be more pleasing. We hide behind pretty faces, which we put on for the benefit of our public. And in time, we may even come to forget that we are hiding and think that our assumed pretty face is what we are really like. You feel that? You feel the impact of that? We're hiding. Put on these masks so that people will like us. We put on these masks that cover our shame and cover that sense of insecurity. And I, that last line is really frightening to me. Over time, we forget we're hiding. Over time, we forget we're hiding. That somehow, some way, the false self that we've lived out of becomes the only self that we know. And it's the self that gets us through life. It's the self that gets us, um, gets us into the in crowd, but it's not the self that will sustain us. Right now, I feel like for you all, right now is like prime time for you. Right now is prime time for you to, to navigate either in the direction of continued hiddenness or to move in a direction of flourishing and wholeheartedness. I feel like college is one of those 
moments where there are loads of existential questions, right, in college. I mean, it's just, that's college. That's like the definition of college. But one of those big existential questions are, are you going to move in the direction of like this manufactured false self that protects you from shame, from insecurity, from anxiety, from depression? Or are you going to move in the direction of authenticity, of wholeheartedness, of flourishing? Um, when I was 27, I, uh, by the way, I didn't do this when I was in college. Um, I was living uh, fully out of a false self that allowed me to cope with a lot of anxiety and a lot of shame that I had through middle school and high school. By the time I got to college, um, my, my way of, of relating was sort of in full gear, and uh, I was confidently living out of this, this me that was, um, not, I would say, not really me. And it caught up to me when I was 27 years old. I'd been married for four years already, or three years at that point. Um, I go over to England to study for the summer, and I hit a wall. I, just, I hit a wall. I'm over there to, to win the approval of scholars so that I could get into a big-name doctoral program. And in my pushing and pushing and pushing and giving and giving and giving and writing 25-page papers every week and, and bringing my questions, do you approve of me? And waiting on the letter, waiting on the letter that will say, if I get this letter, you have what it takes to go to a real PhD program. So waiting on a letter that will define my existence, in a sense, I got really, really sick. I have physically sick, but I think it was like psychosomatic. I, got, I was emotionally a mess. And I remember coming home and sitting down with a counselor and, um, and, and offering this up to a counselor. And maybe you've been to a counselor. Like, the best counselors just sat, sit there with, like, a smile and nod, like, yeah, you're a mess. You're really, you're really, you're really screwed up. And um, I think for about the next half hour, I, I just bawled and bawled. I was like, like a puddle on the floor. And... Um, and I realized something needs to change. Something fundamentally, um, uh, something is fundamentally wrong with the way I'm doing life. And I remember when I went to key people in my life, some of my best friends and family members, and said, I am not going to England to study. They said, why? Why would you do that? that they, they, they were so excited about like my mom and dad, their son, going over to study in England, and my friends. And no, I'm going, I'm going to therapy instead. You're doing what? You're going to therapy, huh? So the first principle of, of wholeheartedness is vulnerability. Let's talk about vulnerability. Vulnerability involves risk. It takes courage. It requires a kind of exposure. I mean, Jesus, for me, is the paragon of vulnerability, leaving the right hand of the Father, um, becoming one with us, becoming human, feeling what we feel, experiencing shame, Betrayal, abandonment, vulnerability. When I think about the masks that I've worn, when I think about the masks that maybe you wear, masks are self-protective. Masks don't allow for any kind of vulnerability or any kind of honesty. Masks keep us safe. Masks maybe even allow us to be successful for a time. But they don't ever allow us to be known. They don't allow us to connect with other people. And so vulnerability takes risk, risk being known, the, the courage to put yourself out there, and, and, and the risk to be exposed. In a sense, when I said to my friends, when I said to my family, I'm, I'm not going overseas to study and to do a PhD, there's a sense of exposure. And, and there were whispers, and I found out later there were whispers, like, what's wrong with him? 
Did he have some, like, some sort of mental breakdown? Or like, what's, what's going on with him? It also requires honesty. Honesty. And not just like a general honesty. Not just like a, how are you doing? Well, life really sucks. <laughs> that's, that's not honesty. Honesty is, I'm not doing well right now at all. I'm depressed. Sometimes I think about harming myself. I'm in pain right now. Um, I think I may have a sexual addiction. I'm drinking too much. Requires honesty. Requires trusting. And, and by the way, you've got to find the right people to share your story with, right? Because if you share your story with, with the wrong people, they'll, they'll just sort of use it against you. But finding those, you know, those two or three people in your life that can hold your story to say, it's not going well with me right now. I'm scared. I'm tired. I'm not sure I can make it through another semester. Vulnerability also exposes our needs. Incompetent people, maybe even honors college students, can I say this, don't like needs. People who, are, people who get PhDs don't like needs, you know? Needs get in the way, you know? You, you want to kind of button yourself up and work hard and push and push and push. We don't like to talk about needs, but what might you need right now? Like, I, I just need you to listen to me. I, I just need, I need, to, I need to sleep in tomorrow and sit with someone who will, uh, I can talk to about my depression. Or maybe I just need to take a semester off. What do you need? I mean, it's, it's hard to express our needs sometimes because there are people in life that will be disappointed when we express our needs, right? I need to go to therapy, so I'm not going to go over and do a PhD program in Eng England. You think you could deal with those needs just a little bit more quickly because we'd really like a, to have a son that goes to Oxford. You know, that's what you get back. But vulnerab vulnerability involves expressing our needs. And the fear is always that in living this way, I run the risk of not succeeding or not attaining or not accomplishing what I had hoped. But here's what I'm finding. Is that that might have been the paradigm before, but what I'm, what I'm seeing more and more today, and it's not universal, it's not across the board, but what I'm seeing more and more today is what I said earlier, that companies are looking for people who exhibit vulnerability. That, um, that uh, ad admissions directors at law schools and at med schools and at seminaries are looking pe for people with emotional maturity, men and women with some sense of emotional intelligence, that 4.0 doesn't define us anymore. That the ACT or SAT score doesn't define you anymore. That IQ doesn't necessarily define you anymore. That we're leaning into social intelligence and emotional intelligence and we're growing in our capacity to, to know and be known, to share our lives. I heard, I heard a, um, I was talking to the head of a law school program that said, I'd much rather, I, I look at the grades and I look at some of the scores on the standardized tests that they need to take, but then I sit down and I want to know that I'm sitting with a human being, a well-adjusted human being. And I think that's beautiful, that things are changing. And so whether there's some anxiety that, wow, if I live in this way, if I live with greater vulnerability, what will people think? Will I be the success that I want to be? What I, what I want to say to you is that times are changing and that people are, are looking for people like you who've taken the journey, who've grown in wholeheartedness. But even if that wasn't the case, what I want to say to you is that the gospel is not about attaining or achieving. In a sense, the gospel is about falling into the goodness of yours, of God's, which is yours. Sometimes it's about failing into the goodness of God. 
And so even for those of you today who are pushing and pushing and pushing, and it feels like, you know, if I, if I don't get the A on the test, or if I don't complete the semester in the way that I hope, what I want to share with you is that, that struggling, that failing, that your vulnerability might actually be the pathway to deeper connection with God and with others. And so vulnerability. Self-compassion is the second pathway. Self-compassion. And then we'll be done. Why self-compassion? Um, self-compassion sounds kind of selfish, doesn't it? Like, why would we need self-compassion? We're finding that self-compassion is really vital to you all thriving. Uh, the great 16th century writer, a wonderful revolutionary woman, if you're looking for someone to aspire to, St. Teresa of Avila, a great Spanish mystic in the 16th century, who was writing to her anxious, religious, perfectionistic sisters, once said, by the blood of Jesus Christ, have compassion on yourselves. By the blood of Jesus Christ, have compassion on yourselves. Translated, give yourselves a break. Jesus loves you. It's going to be okay. Self-compassion self is a new language, and it's beginning to replace the language of self-esteem. The language of self-esteem, this is language that we've used for like the last 50 years. Uh, like, I'm, I'm going I'm to generalize this very quickly, but self-esteem was sort of the movement that replaced, uh, particularly like in parenting, um, but before the self-esteem movement, it was thought that in parenting, if you told your kids that they were, they were good and they were great and they grew up to be successful, that you turn them into little narcissists, that they would become arrogant. And some good psychologists came along and said, no, 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 that's not true. Our kids need love. They need attachment, secure attachment. They need eye contact. They need to be told that they can do it. They can do anything they, that they want. But this has since backfired, and now we're coming full circle, and psychologists and sociologists are writing about the need to move from self-esteem to self-compassion. Because the reality is, is that for as much as your mom and dad says you can do everything or anything that you want, you tell me, can you do anything you want? No, no. It's just not true. They lied to us. You know, I cannot become the football player. You're a football player. I can become a football player. And, and it's not only that. There's some of us that don't have privilege. There's some of us who've experienced injustice or abuse or disabilities. So the reality is, is that it's, it's not about you can become anything you want, which is unrealistic. It, the reality is, what story are you living out of? And are you living authentically out of your own story? Self-compassion is about living out of your unique story, your unique image, your unique design. It's being who God authentically made you to be as, a, as an image bearer. And it's finding that and living out of that proudly, whatever that looks like, whatever vocational sphere that takes you into, proudly living out of that. But it also requires us to have empathy for ourselves, to really begin to grow in deep and profound compassion for ourselves. Do you know what empathy is? You know the difference between sympathy and empathy? You know, like, sympathy is like, you just, you just fell down over there, and I'm like, hey, sorry you fell down. <laughs> empathy is like, is, is moving toward the person. What? Is, is, is sharing in the experience of the person. It's getting close to the person and feeling what the other person feels. We need to begin to practice self-empathy, to, to begin to tune in to what we need, to care for ourselves, to recognize our sadness and our shame. Sometimes we tend to push through emotion. We tend to push it away. 
We don't like emotions, but ignoring your emotions, ignoring your inner life is done to your own detriment. It causes sadness to become depression. It causes righteous anger to become reactive rage. It causes watchfulness to become paranoia and panic. So it's about attuning to where am I right now? What do I need? What am I feeling? Am I sad right now? Am I anxious right now? Am I depressed right now? Am I overwhelmed right now? It's tuning in with a sense of care for yourself and what you need. I teach my students uh, at the seminary to begin every morning with 20 minutes of silence. Um, 20 minutes of silence. Not by picking up your cell phone and tuning into ESPN or Snapchat, making sure your streaks are live and the likes are there. No, 20 minutes of silence. 20 minutes just to be with yourself. It's the ancient practice of contemplation. Today we might call it mindfulness or meditation, but it's simply sitting in the silence and tuning into what's there, what you're experiencing, what you're feeling, becoming connected to God. Sometimes stopping and getting quiet and breathing reminds us that, that God is actually close to our, closer to us than we know. As Augustine once said, God is more near to me than I am to myself. That God is closer to me than my very breath. Augustine once said, we live life on the outside. God lives right here. We're trying to find God in all these different places. This is why we're stretched so thin. This is why we feel pulled in so many directions. If I just attain and achieve or obey, if, I just, if I'm successful, I'll get there. And the reality is, is that it doesn't work. And so there's this invitation then to stop and to recognize that that there's a deeper life inside you, a deeper conversation going on inside you, and to stay still and to tune in, to feel the nearness of God, and to recognize that in your looking for God out there, what you're missing is the God who dwells in you, whispering to you, I love you. Everything I have is yours. So I want to leave you with those five words tonight. Everything I have is yours. Five words. If you don't remember anything I said, remember these five words. Everything I have is yours, God says. It comes from Luke 15. Remember the passage about the prodigal son? Prodigal son who comes home and gets the ring and gets the sandals and gets the robe and gets the feast. But then there's the older brother and he's kind of angry and resentful. And he's like, I've been working and working and working and pressing and obeying and trying to do everything I can to prove myself to you, dad. And the father comes running to him too doesn't just run to the younger son, comes running to the older son. He says, son, everything I have is yours. Sometimes we live with the sense that we, we have to find it, we have to achieve it, we have to attain it. I've got a daughter right now who's a junior. She's looking at colleges, and she feels like the junior year, maybe you remember this in high school, junior year is everything. You know, and if I don't get the SATs and I don't get the ACTs, I, like, I'm, I'm just, I'm not going to become something. And I want to say, Emma, everything God has is already yours. That doesn't mean don't work hard. That doesn't mean don't strive. That doesn't mean uh, don't commit yourself to doing something excellently. It's just this reminder when it's late at night and you've jumped off the hamster wheel, everything I have is yours. It's just this reminder before a big test, everything I have is yours already. It's just this reminder that when that 
boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with you and it feels devastating and it feels like you've lost everything. Everything I have is yours. There's no secret key to wholeheartedness. There's no three steps or seven steps. There's no ladder you can climb. In a sense, you stumble into it along the way. And more often than not, you stumble into it when you hit roadblocks and detours in your life, when you hit moments of pain, sadness, disappointment, depression. And so my invitation to you tonight is to be honest with yourself, maybe to be honest with one or two other people. The journey to wholeheartedness is a lifelong journey, and I think if some of us with a little bit of gray hair would get up and just give testimonies, I'd say at 47 years old, I'm still, I'm so, still sort of struggling in the dark to discover wholeheartedness myself because there's still a whisper in my ear that says, you've not done enough, Chuck. You've not accomplished enough. You've only written three books. You should write four books, right? Everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. Amen? Let me pray for us, and then let's have some Q&A. Father, if we don't remember anything else tonight, help us to remember that, uh, that it is true that everything you have, all your goodness, all your glory, all your love, everything you have is already ours in and through the Spirit, that you dwell more deeply in us than we even know. Uh, give us a sense of grace so that we don't look for it on the outside, but we discover it as something that is already given to us on the inside and draw us more near to you in the process. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.